This episode of the American Birding Podcast is brought to you by Zeiss Sports Optics, a leading manufacturer of high-quality birding optics and advocates for young birder programs, including the ABA's own Young Birder Camps. I can tell you from experience, you will never regret treating yourself to a great pair of binoculars, and Zeiss offers great quality at a price point that works for you. Plus, you're helping to support amazing experiences for young birders. That is a win-win. For more information, visit your local Zeiss dealer or go online to zeiss.com sportsoptics. Hello and welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick. I want to remind you right up top, first thing, that the ABA is going to be at the Rio Grande Valley Birding Festival in November of this year, and we are going to do a live show, a live podcast. It will be fun, I promise you. If it is not, you can take it out on me. That's fine. We do need some audience participation, though, and if you are an American Birding Podcast listener and you are going to be at the festival in any capacity and you'd be willing to help us out by being part of our show, please send me an email at podcast.aba.org. We still have some spots available. We're definitely interested in bird diversity around here, a lot of diversity at the Rio Grande Valley Birding Festival. That's, that's why we're going. And a, a fascinating study came out in the Journal of Geek Studies earlier this month is called Bird Biodiversity in Heavy Metal Songs. You might be happy to know that as global bird biodiversity continues to be a concern for ecologists, heavy metal bird diversity, quite strong, doing very well. So, so this is what they did. The researchers, they used a heavy metal lyrics web compendium and wrote some code to seek out all the bird names in the lyrics it's a total of 145,000 odd songs spanning 368 metal subgenres from, you know, death metal to grunge to punk. So pretty comprehensive and they even tried to incorporate metal songs in languages other than English, so, you know, widen the net a bit. So it turns out that birds are not super common in metal songs. They occur in something like 1.5% of the lyrics tested, but there was some good stuff in there. For starters, Evidently, there is a metal song that features a weed ear. There are at least 10 incidences of hummingbirds. Thrash metal, no doubt. Uh, Cormorant is in there about four times. Gold's a surprising 50 times. But the most metal bird, the bird that most represents the metal lifestyle, is what you might expect. It is the raven. So, no, no, nothing shocking here. So I have some theories, though. First, there's sort of the, the Poe thing, the Edgar Allan Poe thing, which is, you know, instant macabre credibility. I think there's also the fact that ravens, at least, you know, the common raven, they're circumpolar. So they're found all around the upper latitudes of the northern hemisphere, which just so happens to be kind of the metal belt. I don't know if that's actually a thing, but I do know that metal is pretty popular in northern Europe where there's there are a lot of ravens. And, and ravens are popular characters in folklore. You know, they're ill omens evil stuff so you know good for the more ghoulish aspects of the metal genre your folk metal your dark metal your doom metal these are all real genres other extremely metal birds include eagles which came in as number two and vultures came in as number three should not really be too much of a surprise there a fascinating side note penguins all but all those reference come from a single swedish black metal band called satan's penguins not kidding they have a bunch of self-referential songs, so they got 
they kind of artificially job the results. This is fascinating. I want more of this. I want to know what the most country bird is, the most K-pop bird, the most operatic bird. Get on this journal of geek studies. We need this. On the show today, Greg Neese and I did a live What's This Bird Q&A last week on Facebook. You might have caught us. We answered a bunch of bird-related questions, but we missed a couple. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer them now. So if you have any other bird questions, let me have them at podcast.aba.org. We'll find a time to, to work them in. But first, can birding change the world? I don't know. I definitely think the world needs some changing, and maybe birding has its part to play. I am joined by Trish O'Kane from the University of Vermont about her program, Birding to Change the World and Reaching People Through Birds at an Age of High Environmental Anxiety. All that after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the first part of September 2019. We have been sitting here waiting for Alaska to explode, and it did, right on time. The Bering Sea Islands were absolutely hopping in the second week of September, as they frequently are. Both St. Paul and Gamble have had a great couple weeks. On St. Paul, Jack Snipe and Gray-Breasted Flycatcher, codes 3 and 4, respectively, were highlights of a great week, but it was Gamble who hit the mother load this month, starting with a Polizes Bunting, which is a code five, and a dark-sided flycatcher, a four, no doubt, the latter excited for the upcoming Star Wars movie. That was just an appetizer for what came next. A Middendorf's Grasshopper Warbler, one of the great bird names on the ABA checklist, was followed by the ABA's third living record of Eurasian Rhineck, which is this super bizarre, ground-dwelling, cryptic woodpecker known for its crazy neck movements. And then the ABA's sixth record of Rufus-tailed Robin. And then the big one. An ABA and Alaska first record of Paula's grasshopper warbler. So not only the second species of grasshopper warbler on Gamble, but the second bird named after 18th century German naturalist Peter Paulus. And aside, you may recall back in the spring that we had the first ABA record of Paulus's goal in the Aleutians. So, you know, a big year for Peter Paulus, arguably the biggest since his death in 1811. Paulus's grasshopper warbler is also an occasional vagrant to Western Europe, where it has the nickname PG Tips, after a brand of tea in the UK and referencing the white spots on the tips of the tail, which are distinctive. One additional first record to report from Illinois, where the Limpkin invasion has reached the land of Lincoln, which now I think is required to be called the land of Limpkin. This was in Richland County, which is down in the south, now officially the furthest west record of the species in what has been a pretty extraordinary summer for them. Also notable, a groove-billed Ani in Denver, Colorado is not at first, but it sure feels like it, as it is the first record of the species in that state in nearly 40 years. Funnily enough, all four previous records came from a brief period from 1972 to 1980, so maybe this is the harbinger of a similar mini-eruption. This is just a short foray into the Rare Bird Reports of the last couple weeks. For all the rarities you can handle, go to the ABA blog, blog.aba.org, every Friday morning. You can also check us out at the ABA's Rare Bird Alert Facebook group. That's facebook.com slash groups slash ABA Rare. Or follow us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. I think all birders sort of intuitively understand the value of birding, be it societal or personal, even if we're not so great as a community. Uh, at explaining it. 
Birding is a means for personal growth, for mindfulness, for developing a connection to something bigger than yourself is, is a big part of why we do what we do. And I think something that a lot of people are interested in. At least it's a, a fascinating topic with a lot of rich veins to mine and something that Dr. Trish O'Kane at the University of Vermont's Rubenstein School of Environment and Natural Resources has thought a lot about. Her essay of Fledglings and Freshmen was published recently in the New York Times. She's written for them and other publications before. And she is here to talk to me a little about birding to change the world. Trish, you know, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Nick. Uh, Nate. Oh, God. Yeah, that, <laughs> sorry. Boy, if I had a nickel. <laughs> uh, you, have a, you have a fascinating personal history with birding, one that you've recounted for the Times a, a few years ago in an essay called What the Sparrows Taught Me. You were drawn to birding in the wake of a, a natural disaster? Yes. Yes, that's right. Um, Nate, I was never a birder before I started birding in my mid 40s. Um, in fact, I was sort of repelled by birders, to be honest with you, <laughs> because I was an investigative human rights journalist in Central America for 10 years. And I remember being in Guatemala and, you know, kind of mm -hmm. jungly areas and seeing foreign biologists with all this expensive equipment. And they mm -hmm. were doing surveys on monkeys or something, which is important, right? But I mean, these were areas where there had been a lot of massacres by the Guatemalan military, mm -hmm. which was trained and funded by our military. And I was there gathering testimony from massacre survivors. I was working for the United Nations at the time. So I was just really repelled by mm -hmm. foreigners coming in and focusing on the animals when people were terrified. Um, they lost their homes. They lost everything. Um, then I came back to the U.S. and was doing civil rights uh, research and hate crimes research at the Southern Poverty Law Center in Montgomery, Alabama. So still, you know, very much social justice and civil rights, human rights work. Um, then I moved to New Orleans to teach journalism at Loyola University. And uh, 30 days later, 29 days later, <laughs> Hurricane Katrina hit. We just moved into our new house, unfortunately, too close to Lake Pontchartrain and too close to mm -hmm. a levee that broke. Uh, we'd hung all the paintings, had the first dinner party, all that. And then it just all, <laughs> oh, all went into the Gulf of Mexico, literally, yeah. or into the lake. And, um, yeah, the neighborhood was, was called Lakeview, and it was the, <laughs> it was uh, 12 feet below sea level. Yeah, a little, little too close view. Very close. Yeah. It was <laughs> next to the um, – it was one of the worst hit neighborhoods in mm -hmm. England. So that, for me, was a huge wake-up call. Um, I cared about environmental issues before Katrina, but in a very abstract way, like, you know, I bought Burt's Bees makeup or, you know, mm -hmm. rainforest chocolate bars or whatever. I mean, it was a consumerist kind of act of environmentalism. I, I, right. I hadn't felt it personally until we returned to our home 40 days. We weren't allowed in for 40 days because the National Guard hmm. had to search the house for bodies and all that stuff. And it was so bad. It was so bad. 90 of my neighbors drowned. It was really terrible. Mm. The house was, you know, ruined completely. It was filled to the roof with water for three weeks. And it was mm -hmm. just a total loss. And but you don't when you're when you're looking at it evacu you know evacuated, you're in another state from a distance, you're watching it on CNN or Fox or whatever, and it still doesn't it, it, you don't feel it and you, you can't see it. You can't smell it. It's still kind of abstract. Mm -hmm. But when we first, you know, we couldn't even get in the house. We had to like knock the door down. It was, it was really terrible. Uh, it hit me like, Oh, these things are all connected. Right. And the people who 
um, you know, lower income people in New Orleans. I mean, the lower areas, the areas that were most below sea level, a lot of them, you know, were the worst. Of course, they were the worst hit and were right. people couldn't afford. I mean, in New Orleans, sea level is linked to income. I started thinking about all the things I'd learned in Central America and in the South doing civil rights work and connecting the dots. I mean, the hurricane, it was horrible. And, you know, so many people died. Um, for me, it was like I died, too. And a new I became another person because I I decided immediately after Katrina I don't know anything about the environment. I haven't taken biology mm -hmm. since the eighth grade. I'm going to go back to school and I'm going to learn and understand what in the hell happened here and why it happened. Right. And I also, I immediately felt very ashamed. I still do about my way of life in the past and our, just our lifestyle in the U S and how we have used the planet as a credit card. Basically we've maxed mm -hmm. it out, you know, and I know you have children and I teach young mm -hmm. people all day long, all week long, college students and also work with children, um, elementary and middle school. And I mean, what do you say to them? You know? Yeah. Oh no. Yeah. It's something that I, you know, it's, it's on my mind a lot. Like I, I am raising children that are, I, I'd like to think sort of aware of what's going on sort of outside their, outside of their immediate school engagements like they're, they're naturey kids like they know the birds around them they know the bugs around them they appreciate that stuff because i've taken them out into the woods like how do i tell them about some of these super heavy yeah. issues i mean they're they're still relatively young um but i mean that's that's something that i think about a lot yeah. Well, just this Wednesday, we started our kids program up again at the university, the Birding to Change the World program, where I take my college students to an elementary school, pair them with a child, and we walk for three hours together and look at birds. So this Wednesday was the first Wednesday of the semester, and I was sitting on a riverbank watching the kids and hearing them all screaming and laughing, and some are already <laughs> holding hands with their college mentors. I mean, it's so sweet. They're fourth and fifth graders. And this fourth grader, a new girl in the program named Nala, came and sat down beside me, and we were looking at the river, and I started asking her questions, and she started talking about global warming, and she told me and her college mentor all about you know, carbon dioxide and how it's making the, you know, the temperature go up and greenhouse gases and how, oh, this is all so beautiful what we're looking at, but it's not going to be here that much longer. And I was almost in tears. I'm just like, my God, this kid is in fourth grade and she's looking around yeah. at all this beauty. We're in this gorgeous place. Birds, snake, the kids are picking up snakes, you know, garters, it's harmless, and frogs. And it's just this joyous, gorgeous day. And she's sitting here telling me and, and a 20-year-old college student, this fourth grader, 9 or 10 or 11 years old or whatever she is, maybe 10, this isn't going to be here much longer. Or she says the flowers and the bees are all going to die. <laughs> That's a kind of a level of awareness that is uh, sort of shocking coming from a 9-year-old. <laughs> well, I, I'm still stunned. I'm still thinking about yeah. it. And my college student who was with her said, I talked to her about it afterwards. I said, I think this is so sad. And she said, well, I don't. She said, I think it's good that they're learning this in school and that hmm. they know about it already. And that's yeah. true. But I, I'm still, I'm still, you know, uh, I don't know. I felt yeah. this way oh, no. Katrina, I, I but it's like we, we all get lulled into this complacency. I think older people, think especially, so. we don't feel the fierce urgency of now, as Martin Luther King that's put it, true. That, our, that yeah. the kids feel and my college students feel. 
but that's that's what Katrina did for me. It was like a big, a massive frying pan, you know, somebody yeah. beating me over the head with it, saying, wake up. This is the future. This mess you're standing in in your house, you're wearing a respirator. You can't even breathe <laughs> in your own home. Yeah. This is the future that we are handing our children if we don't radically, radically change our lifestyle like now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I want to talk a little bit about your program, uh, Burning to Change the World. Um, you know, what sort of problems did you see that you felt that this program could address? Well, they so again, it's part of the Katrina story. So mm-hmm. right after Katrina, I said, OK, I love New Orleans, but I'm new here. I can I can make the choice to leave and go back to school. I'm a privileged person. I was in my I was 45. I decided to go get a Ph.D. in environmental mm-hmm. natural resources, and I got accepted into a program in Madison, Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Fabulous program, environmental studies, Nelson Institute. Loved it. Uh, very lucky to get in there. And um, as soon as we moved there, my husband and I, we moved to the edge of a gorgeous city park called Warner Park. Right across mm-hmm. the street, we bought a little house and settled in for a few years for me to get the Ph.D. Um, we were living in a neighborhood that had a lot of problems with crime, uh, but a fabulous, beautiful neighborhood. Um, loved my neighbors. It was one of the most diverse neighborhoods in Madison. Madison is a pretty white place. And I was coming from the South and from Latin America and not used to living mm-hmm. in really white places at all. So I loved my neighborhood, felt really comfortable and uh, but I started going to community meetings and finding out, oh, we have some crime issues and there's a lot of kids who don't have anything to do after school. And then one day, oh, in the meantime, I took an ornithology class and mm-hmm. started birding in that park and fell off the deep end like birders right. listening. You know what I'm talking about? You, yeah, I had a we've con- all been there. I had yeah. a converting <laughs> experience. Right. So I became a completely nuts, obsessed birder. While I was going to neighborhood meetings and one of these neighborhood meetings, a principal from the local middle school, his name was Mike Hernandez. He was a new principal. He was from Southern California, which is where I'm from originally. And he came and he said to all the neighbor, the neighborhood association, he said, hey, I'm new here. And the middle school where I where where I've taken over has some issues. And he said, I've got kids that need tutors. They need mentors and I need your help. And I sat there and I thought, God, I don't know anything about kids. I don't have kids. Middle school kids. That sounds like a horrible age and all the hormones. <laughs> and I don't want to work with those kids. I don't even know how to do it. But then I thought there's this park. The kids live on the edge of the park. There's these great birds. And I'm a graduate student teaching in a great university. So I thought, hmm, I'm going to go talk to this guy about starting an after school birding club. He's probably going to think mm-hmm. I'm nuts. But why not? That's what I, I could do something in my park with my neighborhood kids and use college students. So I went to see him. And he looked at me for a few minutes. And I thought he's thinking I'm crazy. I'm one of these, you know, nutty birds. <laughs> privileged white people with their binoculars. And he says, he says, Trish, he says, I get the bird thing. He said, my sister works at Cornell. He says, I know about this. He said, let's try it. Well, that was eight years ago. So Hmm. I set this up, Nate, to meet a community need. He wanted mentors. I wanted to work outside with birds and young people. And so I went to UW-Madison. I proposed to my boss this project, which was a class. At that time, it was the first class was called Last Child in the Park, How Kids and Birds Mm -hmm. Can Save the Planet. And we used uh, Richard Lou's book, Last Child in the Woods, as the class text. And I still use it. Yeah, absolutely. So that was the first class. Now it's evolved and it's called Birding to Change the World. But 
I did that for five years as a grad, a PhD student at Madison and the program the first year at Sherman Middle School. We had six kids show up the first day, six middle school kids. And I had That's not bad. 13 college students in four yeah. years, 101 kids signed up the fourth. Wow. Year. And thank God only half of them showed up the first day <laughs> because I only had like 15 college students. It's like, we have to cap this at 50. It became yeah. the most popular after school club in the history of Sherman That's amazing. School and maybe in the Madison School District, with the exception of sports, right? This is a right. hobby club. It became wildly popular. And I think um, the kids, first of all, they lived right across the street from the park or near the park. So it, it made the park their playground. But they, the main thing, and this is what the principal, it was Mike Hernandez, that principal, who was the real visionary, uh, bringing tutors and mentors into the school. He said, Trish, he said, it's about relationships. He said, it's not about the birds. He said, the birds are fine. He said, it's really about those mentoring relationships. And he was mm -hmm. right, Nate. Um, at the end of every semester, most of my college students they, they take the class for a semester and leave. But that first semester in Madison, I had three students come to me, college students, and say, Trish, can I take the class again? I don't want to leave my kid. And I was like, you want to take a class again? Like, usually you only take a class again if you feel right. right? These and, I <laughs> right. and I said, well, okay, yeah. I guess I'll figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was just, just going to ask, who do, you, who do you think gets the most out of this sort of program? Is it the middle school students who are kind of introduced to, to birds and nature for the first time? Or is it the, these college students who have the opportunity to be, I don't know, a leader? Right. So I was, when I was in Central America, I went to Nicaragua in the 1980s to join the Sandinista Revolution. Long story, not not a fan right now of the Sandinistas or Daniel Ortega. That's another story. But I went there <laughs> and I, I worked for a Jesuit research institute, all based on the ideas of Paulo Freire, who was the Brazilian pedagogue. And it's all based on part of its reciprocity. So I can't answer the mm -hmm. question. I don't know who gets the most out of it. Right. It, it's right, totally right. reciprocal. My students yeah. learn more from that child than they'll ever learn from me. And the children I know from the after-school staff and from getting to know the kids, because like right now, I, it's the program's in my own neighborhood, so I see the kids at the gas station, at the store. Mm -hmm. I mean, if the kids, some of them start with behavioral problems, you know, just maybe they don't like sitting in a desk for seven hours right. a day. I mean, I would have been one of those kids, right? I was probably <laughs> ADD and all that stuff. Um, they start to calm down after two to three weeks. It's I've seen this now for eight years that I've been doing this. It is so obvious that yeah. the power of being outside and also of having an adult who just listens to them for two hours because we're all so distracted and parents are so busy um, and, you know, working so much. And so here's this captive audience, this college student who just listens to them and they love that. They love that. So, but we all get so much out of it. I can't say who gets more. And the birds get yeah. something out of it too. The birds are partners in this because. Right. They've got allies. They've got yeah. allies. And in Madison, the park where we were working with the kids, the kids had to go, they went before the Parks Commission to testify and to spend. Wow. Trees were the parks department was cutting down trees in the park, and some of the kids loved those trees so much they went and cried before the parks commission, begging them not to cut down the trees and not to kill the geese and to leave the mm -hmm. animals alone. So 
the animals and the trees and the place itself that where we are learning is also a partner in this. I, it's really interesting how you you point out that um, you know kids that may have started with behavioral problems you'll come around with exposure to nature. That that totally mirrors my own experiences. I've done environmental education with a local. Uh, wildlife center in summer camps. And, you know, when I started doing it, you'd get the list of the students uh, that are going to be in your group. And it'd be like, oh, this one's on the, uh, you know, on the autism spectrum or, or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and you know, at first you're like, oh, you know, I'm a little, you know, concerned. How is how is this going to work out in this group? But I'll tell you, like, by the end of the week, it's not even an issue right. to the point where, you know, yep. The last couple of years I did it, I was like, oh, yeah. Uh, so I've got a, a kid who is uh, who is diagnosed with Asperger's. Like, I, I am not concerned about that because I know that the the experience of being out in nature, in in the woods, looking at birds or, or looking at whatever. I mean, there's so much stuff to engage with is is going to, you know, put them in a place where, you know, those sorts of issues that might be a problem in a, in a traditional classroom are, are not are not something you worry about or even think about in some cases. Yep. I've had exactly the same experience, Nate, and, and thanks to my very talented college students. So it's a one-on-one -on -one relationship. Mm -hmm. They do the work. Certainly. But we had um, a kid in um, Madison who had Asperger's. And yeah, it, within a few weeks, it's a, they're a flock. And I talked to the, yeah. my students about the concept of the flock, yeah. mixed flocks in the winter, mixed species flocks, you know, and so it's kind of a metaphor, but saying, hey, there's all kinds of kids and we're a mixed flock. Uh, this summer, uh, one of my students who graduated, Gracie Harvey, who's so talented, and I hired her part-time, she ran a middle school birding club in the summer, and the mm -hmm. top birder in that club was a kid who's legally blind because oh, he wow. could hear so well, and he got yeah, so yeah. much out of being outside. And she wasn't sure at first. She had a, a girl in a wheelchair, and she had him. She had kids with all different, very different abilities, and she, was, mm -hmm. she had no experience with this and not sure how to handle it um, and what to do. And <laughs> the kids did fantastic. That's amazing. Now they had their caregivers with them, but but uh -huh. they just they birded five days a week, six from nine to three for I think mm -hmm. six weeks. This wow, was that's intense. Yeah. That's it. That's intense, even for serious <laughs> it birders. Was hardcore. She <laughs> took them all over the place in a van, and it was a wild success. She had like I don't know eight to ten kids, so it was small, wow, manageable, that's amazing with help. But the top birder was this kid who cannot see. Wow, that's really cool. In the recent essay in the New York Times of fledglings and freshmen, you talk a little bit about the anxiety that your students feel about those environmental issues, specifically climate change, the, the big one that's kind of overarching environmental issue. Um, I, I definitely think that that's something we all share, and I certainly sympathize. Um, how do you use birds as a way to, I don't know, I don't necessarily want to say assuage that anxiety, but sort of address that anxiety? Well, the first thing I tell my students is that Birds are everywhere. They're all around us. Mm -hmm. Like we could be, we'll be, we'll be sitting in class talking about this and a goldfinch will fly by, right? Or, you know, mm -hmm. or there'll be a hawk or something outside. So I tell them it's for me personally, it's a rest. They're a respite. Birds are a respite and an inspiration. And they give me a little bit of peace. It's like, it's a meditation for me. And that yeah. gives me the strength to do what we need to do, which is to be involved in organizing and be involved in my community and go to meetings. And I don't do it enough because of teaching and, but teaching sure. as I see yeah. also as a form of activism. So I tell Absolutely. my students, look, this is, 
this is a sustainable, renewable fuel for your heart and soul because we are facing very difficult times. And again, I have the Katrina picture in my brain. I cannot Mm -hmm. forget those images, those smells. For me, that's the future that we face if we do not change. And so I tell my students, this helped me get over Katrina and decide, okay, I'm going to keep trying to change things in another way. And I'm going to learn about the environment and teach about it. And, and, uh, but the birds helped me do that. They helped me Mm -hmm. get over Katrina and every day I don't go birding every, well, I'm always birding, right? You're a birder. I mean, you're always listening. Mm-hmm. You're driving. Yeah. Things. I'm never not birding. Yeah. You see a vulture <laughs> high up. It's like, oh, I'll tell right. my students, no birding while driving. Don't do it. It's terrible. <laughs> but I, if I'm down, if I'm really stressed, I know all I have to do is just get outside and go for a walk for like an hour and even just watch mm-hmm. one bird. And I tell my students that, and I think it's, it's really empowering for some of them to know it's so easy, it's right there. And that mm-hmm. it can be anywhere, even, you know, it could be in downtown New York, right? I mean, Central Park is one of the biggest oh, hotspots yeah. in the world. So you do not have to be in a wilderness area. You do not have to have expensive equipment. Birding is accessible. Um, mm-hmm. and, and we need to, to let people know that. So that's what I tell my yeah. students. It's not just go bird and la, 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 forget everything. <laughs> right. No, go bird and get your heart fuel and then go fight the fight. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, there's certainly, I think, lessons to be taken, too, by the sort of resiliency of birds. Yes. You know, we think about 40 years ago, how it was amazing, uh, maybe not 40, 50 now, uh, you know, when DDT was banned, yep. it was it was it was a big deal to see a bald eagle or an osprey. Yeah, and the way that they have come back has been—I mean, it feels like a miracle. I mean, it has to feel like a miracle to people who were around when they were, their populations were so low. And you know, theoretically, birds with given opportunities—if we can help them find these opportunities to to recover—they theoretically they can. And I think that there's something really gratifying about that as well. Yeah, I, I tell I share those stories with my students. I love that, you know, the eagle and the osprey story. And then in, in mm-hmm. Wisconsin, the Sandhill Crane story. Yeah. And the Canada yeah, geese absolutely. story. I mean, the geese, yeah. you know, look at look at they made a heck of a comeback, right? Yeah, no um, joke. So yeah. I agree with you. I love that word. It's a miracle. Uh, and also how much we can just learn from birds and, and how, well, I love migratory, long distance migratory, neotropical migrants, you know, especially mm-hmm. the ones here in Vermont that are Guatemalan birds or Mexican yeah. birds or Nicaraguan oh, yeah. birds. And, you know, the birds. There's, a, there's another connection to those places they don't, well, they, in your backyard. They're from all those places and they don't yeah. know borders and they, they can live in many cultures. And so I think our species can learn a lot from how birds interact and, and how they inhabit the planet. Dr. Trisha Kane is at the University of Vermont's Rubenstein School of Environment and Natural Resources. Her program, Birding to Change the World, continues to try to change the world one birder at a time. It is a program that can be repeated wherever you are. I've got information about that in the show notes. Check that out. Thank you, Trish. This is a great conversation. You're welcome, Nate. Thank you. ABA webmaster Greg Neese and I did a live question and answer session on Facebook last week. It is our hope that this sort of thing becomes more regular because they're always fun. And I've sort of made a breakthrough in the technology we use to broadcast them. So thank you, Internet. We answered a lot of birdie questions that ran the gamut from Baypole warbler identification to birds that respond to a changing climate to the crazy chat 
Oriole hybrid thing that was discovered last week and is currently blowing the minds of birders all across the continent. But there were a couple questions that we didn't get to, either because, you know, we didn't have time or they were just overlooked in the whole stream of comments on that live video. So I'm going to go ahead and, and hit them now. Consider it an American birding podcast mailbag. So first, Lalita Rodriguez asks, when you go to another country and you have limited time to prepare and study to learn the birds before you go birding, what should you concentrate on so as to not just be spoon-fed by a guide? An interesting question for sure, Lolita. I can't tell you what others do. Uh, I can tell you what I do. But the first thing you want to pick up is the appropriate field guide, and you want to keep it in a place where you are frequently going to pick it up. It could be the coffee table in the living room or in the bathroom. It's a really good idea to get comfortable with the families, especially if you're birding in a place where you're likely to find families of birds that you are not familiar with. So basically anywhere that is not the temperate zone of the Northern Hemisphere. Well, one thing that I do in addition to all that is that I will look at my itinerary and I will pay very close attention to where I am going to be because you know, figuring out what birds are where is as important as knowing the physical field marks. Uh, this is what we call status and distribution. You probably heard that term before. You know, where and when a bird will be in a place. So what I will do is I'll take that field guide and I will go to eBird and I will look at the very specific places I'm going to be and when I'm going to be there. And I will, you know, write right there in the margins of the guide where I'm likely to see a given bird. So when I am looking at a bird that I don't know, uh, I can at least narrow it down to the most likely options rather than sort of driving myself crazy considering birds that are completely unlikely or found on the other side of the country, uh, unlikely to be at that given place. eBird is a fantastic reference for that sort of thing. For instance, I was in uh, East Africa a couple years ago. I got the field guide to East Africa, which, you know, it's 900 species there. It's a very big field guide, kind of overwhelming. Uh, but I looked at the places that I was planning on being, and I just wrote right there next to the picture a little code of where I was going to be. So I was in Uganda. We went to a couple national parks, uh, Murchison Falls and Queen Elizabeth. I just wrote MFQE next to the birds. And that actually really helped, especially when you're looking at species groups that look very similar, things like cysticolas or weavers or whatever. But you can, you can apply that to just about anywhere. So... Don't be afraid to write in that field guide. Don't be afraid to get that field guide messy because, you know, it's 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 a tool and you want you want to be able to use it as a tool. Tommy Goodwin asks, uh, was the brown booby removed from the ABA rare eBird reports? Is it still classified as a code three, four, I believe? Uh, he says, same thing with Aplomato Falcon. He hasn't seen reports of those in a while. So uh, this is another good question. This is sort of an eBird specific question, so I can only sort of speculate, but it does require a short explanation of what we talk about when we talk about codes, the code three, four. You may have heard me use those things, especially in the rare bird segment of these podcasts. So, so on the ABA checklist, when you look at that whole list of birds, uh, you will see that we assign a code to every species. And this is roughly based on how likely it is that you will encounter this bird. So code one birds would be very common birds with a wide distribution Things like uh, American Crow, uh, Northern Flicker, Blue Jay in the east, and Stellar Jay in the west. These are um, 
common breeding birds in the ABA area. Code two will be range-restricted species, so things like plain chachalaca, things that only come up into the ABA area in a very small area. So that's code two, but they still breed here and they can be commonly encountered in the places where they occur. Code three are sort of regular vagrants. So brown booby is is one of those uh, birds because it has a regular pattern of vagrancy into uh, the ABA area, even though it does not breed here. Code four and code five are unlike, very unlikely vagrants. So eBird sends out a needs list, an email every day that will have the rare birds that have been seen across the ABA area. And sometimes when a rare bird is found so regularly, they remove it. And I think that's what they did for brown booby. So that's it was an executive decision by eBird, essentially. Last thing, Clifford Holly says, can you guys put in a plug for folks to hit their local native plants sales this fall and help the birds out with some natural food? Consider that plug made. Uh, thanks, everybody. This might be a fun regular thing to do. So if you have any bird questions, please send me a message at podcast.aba.org or you can find us on Twitter or Facebook. You can hit me up there. And if any of you are on the ladder on Facebook, keep an eye out for our live Q&As. We're going to be doing those more often now. Thanks. American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. We are a membership organization, and the best way to support this podcast and all the resources that the ABA is happy to provide the birding community in the U.S. and Canada is to join the ABA. We would certainly appreciate it if you did. You can get more information about joining at aba.org slash join or check out our e-memberships at aba.org slash e-member. If you're feeling especially motivated to help us out, you can go to Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast dispensary you use and leave us a rating or a review. Those reviews help make this show better and they definitely help other people find us. Thank you for that. Be sure to tell your friends. Word of mouth is the best way to get our message out. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. Based on extensive personal research in the genre, he suggests that the most new wave birds are those in the solitary vireo complex. It's the spectacles. Technical production is from John Lowry. His band, The Hangabouts, just put out a new single. You can find it in the show notes. But it is his most ardent belief that the most power pop bird is Mississippi Kite. Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese. This should come as no surprise, but they both came to the independent determination that the most glam rock bird is painted bunting. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at ABA. We've crunched the numbers. We've searched the songs. We've listened to thousands upon thousands of hours of My Bloody Valentine. And we have come to the conclusion that the most shoegazer bird is Shoebill, because it's always gazing at its bill. You can't get around it. Questions, comments can come to me at podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time.